So I want to divide today's discussion into two parts. We are still going through the 13 principles of faith as enumerated by the Rambam. Again, this is the framework in which Torah can flourish. This is the the architecture of what we believe. And we're up to principle number four. We're going to cover principle number four today, which is the the way it's described. It's a little bit complicated. We'll talk about it. But it's the concept of God being outside of time and space and thus the creation of God and the existence of God being on a different level than everything that was created and the creation of matter, of things, is ex nihilo, meaning that it wasn't around previously and God willed it into existence, something out of nothing. At some point, you can't say in time because this is before time, before the creation of the world, there was no time, there was no space, there was no matter, there was no energy, it was just God existing outside of those constraints. And bringing that into existence, what's called ex nihilo, what's called in Hebrew yesh me'ayin, something out of nothing. So that's the fourth principle. Again, this is the 13 principles of the Rambam, the first five, but really the first four deal with theology. The fifth one is more about um, religion, I'll, I'll say. We'll talk about that next time. So that's the beginning of the talk. And the second, the, the end of the talk, I want to begin discussing some of the conflicts that exist between science or the accepted position of the scientists and the philosophers today and Torah with respect to matters of theology. So we'll start talking about that and that makes them into next time as well. So the fourth principle is written quite succinctly in the Rambam and it's called, in one word, it's called kadmos, which means that God, the existence of God is a necessarily primary existence, meaning that it preceded everything else that existed. All that exists other than him is not primary in relationship to him. He was an existence that had no beginning, has no end, is outside of the realms of of time and space. And quotes a verse, he says there's many verses to attest to this idea. It's found in, for example, in Deuteronomy 33, God who precedes all existence and that's the idea that God is, 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 a, is an existence that preceded all, is outside of time and space, and brought everything else into existence, ex nihilo. Now, there is an addendum that the Ramam added 20 years after he wrote the first edition of the commentary Mishnah in which the 13 principles is found. He added an addendum which says as follows, quote, you should know that the most important principle of all of Moses' Moses's Torah, i.e. all of Torah, is that the world is a new world. Not world that existed forever, a world that came into existence new. That God brought into existence, God created after there was nothing in the world. There was only God. That's how he, he frames it in his later addendum. So there's a few different ways that this is couched. Again, we have this original comment and a subsequent comment. And there's different ways that it's presented in, in the other books that, that talk about it. But it seems like there's two separate ideas that are interrelated that are conveyed here in this fourth principle. Number one, God is primary, has no beginning, is above the concept of time. Time itself is a creation. And everything else is not primary. Everything else was created by God, got effectuated, God brought into existence everything else and created that something out of nothing. Now, there is a work a magisterial work called More Nevuchim, 
which in English is the guide to the perplexed, written by the Rambam, written in his unique style of Hebrew letters with Arabic words, and therefore it's translated from Arabic, but the original is actually Hebrew letters, uh, transliterated Arabic. And he spends a great deal of time dissecting this idea, the fourth principle of the 13 principles of faith. In fact, uh, section number two of the Guide to the Perplexed, the first 30 chapters, the Rambam dwells on this subject. It was obviously something that was very important for him to discuss. And he explains the perspective of the philosophers, namely Aristotle and Plato. They argue that the world was eternal. The world was primary. The world existed forever. Turtles all the way down. And he explains their mistake and he he, he elaborates at great length. We're not going to cover it all. First of all, because I didn't read it all. Uh, second of all, because the parts that I did read are very dense and we, we will cover parts of it to, that to, to explain this idea. But also, I would add that the reason why the Rambam spent so much time in it, because that was the central point of conflict that he had with the philosophers in his time. Today, even science, even the secular philosophers, they accept the concept that the world has a beginning. This is a major innovation that happened in the 1950s and 1960s when they discovered conclusively that the world has a beginning. And thus, 2,400 years of Greek philosophy that the Rambam spent so much time to try to disprove and try to explain and try to analyze 30 chapters of Moravuchim, 30 chapters of, of God to all that's not necessary today because really no one really argues this point. Everyone accepts this point. The first word of the Torah, Beratius, in the beginning is now universally accepted by all. Now I want to read how the Rambam uh, phrases this concept in in Moravuchim, in the guide, in section 2, chapter number 13. He says, The belief of everyone who believes in the Torah of, of Moses is that the world in its entirety, meaning everything that exists with the exception of God, God brought it into existence when there was nothing prior. And he himself, God himself, he is the one existence which is primary. There's no other existence besides for him, not an angel, not a galaxy, not an orbit, not anything that's inside a, a galaxy. None of that was in existence prior. And God brought all that into existence as he desired, something out of nothing. And then he adds, also time itself is a creation Beforehand, it didn't exist. It was created out of nothing. The concept of time did not exist prior. This is a very deep idea, which sounds very modern. It sounds like something Einstein would say, the idea of, the idea of time being a creation and thus being manipulatable. Uh, so, for example, you know, the Mishnah tells us that there's 10 utterances that God used to create the world. If you actually count how many times in the Genesis narrative, it says, Vayomer Elohim, and God said, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. It's only nine. So how does the mission say, how does the mission contend that there's ten? And the answer is that the word beratious in the beginning is in itself one of the utterances. It's one of the ten utterances. It's a creation. What is the creation of the word beratious? The answer is time.
God created the concept of time in Genesis, in the creation of Genesis. We say every day, Baruch Yotzer Bereshis, which the Gona Vilna explains, it means it is a blessing of God that he created time. Now the Rambam elaborates on the intricacies of the positions of Plato and Aristotle and how Torah differs. And it's interesting, he tells us that the first three principles that we've seen hitherto were agreed upon by Plato and Aristotle, but the fourth is where there is a departure between Torah and between the ancient Greek philosophers. And he explains that there is a difference between how Plato viewed it and how Aristotle viewed it. And I know these things don't really titulate modern audiences, but it is interesting that Ram does spend a lot of time talking about them, explaining why, you know, wh- how they differ from each other and how they differ from Torah. We'll just kind of go through it real quickly. So he says that Aristotle believed that just like God existed forever, the world existed forever. And therefore the world is primary. And therefore the fourth principle is a departure from Aristotle. We say that the world is not primary, only God is primary, and God brought the world into existence. That is the position of Aristotle. His teacher, of course, Plato, he believed that God is primary, but matter is also primary. And God took the matter and reformed it from the matter that was existing prior. Matter was, matter has been around forever. Matter is eternal. And God used matter that was existing eternally to create the world. And of course, the idea of the God of Aristotle, the God of Plato, these are very different concepts in general to the God that we talk about. You know, we talk about the God that you could pray to, which is the fifth principle that we're supposed to have a relationship with God. That's the objective. God cares about us. We matter to him, so to speak. He created the world for a purpose. All those ideas are absent from the God of Aristotle. But here is where the departure begins. This concept of God being the sole thing that existed eternally, the sole thing that's outside of time and space, and everything else, creation, was out of nothing. Et nihilo, that is a Jewish concept, a Torah concept, and not a concept that is agreed upon by the Greek philosophers. And the Ram adds that the Greek philosophers, they use their reason. He goes on to explain how the reason is limited because your reason is is guided by your perspective. And your perspective is, again, one that comes after the world was created. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he adds that for the first three of the 13 principles, he does use some of the arguments of Aristotle and Plato because they use logic to arrive at what we know from the Torah, but they use logic to arrive at and that's that's okay. It's okay to use them for when they're saying the things that are correct. But the fourth principle is only deductible from tradition and not from reason and not from intellect. And therefore, Plato and Aristotle, despite their tremendous gargantuan intellect, they could not arrive at it because it's only something that can be deduced from from tradition. It's not something you could prove by logic, even though that assertion is maybe a little bit contentious. So that's the idea. The idea the world is a new world. There was a beginning. There was an existence where it was just God, there was no time, there was no space, there was no matter, there was no world, and God, out of nothing, created that world and formed it in the way that we have today. It's interesting, the Ramban, Nachmanides, 
in the beginning of his commentary on Genesis, he tells us that there's two different words that the Torah uses to describe creation. One, the word bara, which means to create, and one, the word yatsar, which means to form. And the Ramban explains that the creation ex nihilo, something out of nothing, is the word bara, and the creation of something out of something else, of reformatting, repurposing something which already exists, is the word yatsar. And he adds, day one is the only time, and, the, and it seems like Rashi agrees with this, day one is the only time there is creation ex nihilo, something out of nothing, all the matter is created then, and the rest of the days it's not creation ex nihilo, it's reformatting, repurposing uh, the existing matter of day one into the items that were created in the subsequent days of creation. Now, the problem with this principle for us is that we have to acknowledge an existence that we cannot fathom. That's beyond human comprehension. Because as creations, we cannot fathom the creator. Moreover, the rigidity of the world in which we live in, in our, in our viewpoint, post-creation, is fixed. And therefore, we cannot fathom what happened prior to creation. We cannot imagine a world where there's no time, there's no space, there's no matter. It's not something we could fathom. And that's by design. We were created and we were molded into a reality of post-creation, not pre-creation. And here we're dancing around the idea of the existence of God before creation. And the Rambam explains that all of Aristotle's problems stemmed from this. That he, of course, he was using his intellect, but even his intellect that is considerable, that is potent, but even his intellect is limited to the reality of the post-creation world. And you cannot prove from post-creation the method in which creation came about. And the Rambam has a very beautiful analogy, very beautiful parable to explain this point. I want to read it to you here. He says, suppose you have a very wonderful and healthy person who's born. And a few months after he's born, his mother dies. So he's been weaned, and they decided to do an experiment with this person. Sounds like a little bit like, like the Truman Show. They decided to put him on an island, and he's totally isolated on the island. He has There's some males around him. There's no females around him. And they, they develop him, and they teach him, and he learns, and he becomes a very advanced scholar, but never in his life did he see a woman. And even the animals on the island, there's only, there's only male animals on the island. There's no, there's no female al- uh, animals on the island. Suppose you have such a person. This is, this is the words of the Rambam in chapter number 17 of the second section of the Guide to the Perplexed. And one day, this individual who's been stranded on, on, on the island his whole life, he asked the question, where do you come from? Where does man come from? Where does man come into existence? How does man, how was man born? How does man come into existence? So one of the people that are there tells him the answer. He says, well, there's another species of ours. There's the female version of ours. And she has a little pouch in her stomach. And the baby's put in there in this magical way. And for nine months, the baby's inside the woman's stomach. 
and is alive and is eating through this umbilical cord. And at a certain point in time, when they grow too big, then there's an opening that's opened on the bottom. And the child, this is words of the Rambam, the child doors his way out. And afterwards, everything changes. His eyes, which were closed, open. His mouth, which closed, opens. And the umbilical connection gets sealed. And then he comes and comes into existence. Suppose that person who never knew anything better, who never actually met a woman, who never saw this, who never fathomed this, someone's very advanced scholastically, but he's given that story. Of course, it's rubbish, right? Of course, right? That, that, that child, that orphan, the way the Ram calls it, he'll ask, he'll certainly ask the following question. He says, he says, wait a minute. How does he eat? How does he drink in utero? How does he eat? How does he drink? How does he breathe? How does he go to the bathroom? How does that work? Well, he doesn't. It all works magically. Without a doubt, this person will rebut this matter. And it'll bring all kinds of proofs that it's not possible that this situation that you're describing is true. And he'll say, number one, he'll say, if you stop breathing for even a few minutes, you'll die and you'll stop, you'll stop operating. How could you even fathom the idea that one of us, a regular human like us, is totally swallowed up in the womb of his mother for months and still lives? Not possible. That's the first question that this child would ask, this orphan will ask. And he says another example. Again, I'm just quoting the Ram because it's such a – the Ram elaborates in this point. He says, if someone swallows a bird who's alive, is it possible for the bird to live inside his stomach? Of course not. It'll die. So certainly when it's in deep, deep inside the mother, there's no way the child will live. There's no way. It's not possible. The child will definitely die. Moreover, if you don't have food, you don't have a drink for a few days, you're going to die. Certainly not for months. There's no way this would this could possibly exist. It's not possible for us to eat and not and not uh, go to the bathroom. And therefore, someone who's in the in the mother's womb will definitely die that way. And if you make a puncture in someone's stomach, they'll die. So if you make a hole in the umbilical cord, they'll die as well. How is it possible they won't open their eyes? How is it possible that they're all crouched up there in fetal position? There's no way. And the Ram says the person will continue asking question after question. And there's no way you could convince them that the creation of man was in that fashion. Because now, post-creation, the way they, the rules that govern humanity after we're born conflict with the methods in which we were born. That's the example. That's the analogy. That's the parable of the Rambam. And he says, this is something that you should dwell upon. You should ruminate on it. You should He's talking to the audience. He says, you should think about it. He says, this is precisely our situation with Aristotle. That we're following Moses. We're following Abraham. We know that the, how the world was created. They're, so to speak, guiding us, but we're blind because we've never seen the world being created. We can't imagine what the world was like when it was being created. And comes along Aristotle, and he's been living on this world by himself, and he's totally unaware of the methods of creation, and asks very logical questions. His questions are very logical. But the truth is, again, you cannot compare the realities of the world post-creation and use to extrapolate from that the means in which creation happened. It's a different reality. They're not comparable. That's the that's the analogy of the Ramam. He says this is a winning argument. This is a winning argument 
because there's no answer to it because, again, we're trying to talk about a world that we have no connection to, we cannot relate to, and its rules not only differ but conflict with the rules that govern our world. The Ram adds, you know, we said in that addendum that he wrote 20 years later, he said this is the most important principle. Of all the principles, this is the most important principle because without this you really don't have Torah. If the world is eternal, if God is not the only thing which is eternal, if something else preceded creation, then you don't have Torah. Why? He says like this. According to the way that Aristotle saw the world, then nature is on par with God. The world and God are are equals because both of them are eternal. And therefore, God cannot manipulate nature. Nature is not subject to God. They're, they're, they're co-equals, so to speak. Both of them are eternal, and therefore both of them are inflexible. Both of them, neither of them is subject to the other, to the other one. And of course, that conflicts with all of Torah, because all the miracles that are the basis of Torah, all of that are examples of God manipulating and overseeing nature. If God has total dominion over nature, then Torah can have, can have truth. Otherwise, it cannot. Similarly, says the Rambam that without God having supremacy over nature, you don't have the destiny of Torah, the future that Torah paints for us. Moreover, you don't have reward and punishment. Because if God is not in control of us, if God does not have ultimate control, then he cannot really threaten us, so to speak, with, with reward and punishment. And therefore, the, the idea that we are subject to God only exists if this fourth principle of the 13 principles is indeed true. And then he adds, and again, this is 30 chapters of discussion of this subject, which, like we said, is a very arcane subject, not one that really resonates today because the arguments of Aristotle and Plato are totally extinct. No one believes them anymore because if you believe in Torah, you don't believe in them. And even if you don't believe in Torah, you also don't believe in them because everyone agrees the world had a beginning. There was a point in time before time existed and before matter existed and before uh, the world existed, before time and space existed. The Ram adds that if you did not have this fourth principle, you would have all kinds of questions. For example, why did God afford prophecy to this person, not to that person, is a question that you would have if not for this principle. Why did God give his Torah to one nation and not to a different nation? Why did God command to do things in this time and not that time? Why did God command these mitzvahs and warn about these transgressions? Why did God do these miracles with these prophets and not other ones? What is the objective of God via Torah? Why did God make Torah unnatural? Why do we have to resist the nature, so to speak, that's implanted within us? Why is there conflict? It shouldn't be easy. It should be a lot easier than it really is. All these questions can be answered with one answer. This is the will of God and humans cannot understand the will of God because, again, that comes from a different realm that's beyond human comprehension. There's one answer to a myriad of questions. But once you don't accept that, once you assume that everything is within the bounds of what we understand, if you don't take this parable of we're on the island and there is a reality that we just cannot fathom, 
once you don't accept that, if you don't accept it like Aristotle, you have all kinds of questions, not only these questions, but many more. And I think, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the concept of the Big Bang, which was theorized and essentially proven that the world is expanding in the 1960s, they were able to prove that conclusively the world is expanding, which means the world is dynamic. If the world is dynamic, it's not static. If it's not static, it can't be around forever. And thus they extrapolated, you know, how distant is the world and how fast is it expanding. And of course, what is beyond the world is something we can't fathom. It's like the same kind of question. What exists outside of time and space? It's again, something that it's beyond human comprehension. Even the scientists acknowledge that. But today, everyone agrees the world has a beginning and thus most of this principle is already accepted by all uh, people who believe in Torah and people who don't believe in Torah alike. There was a beginning. There was creation. Ex nihilo, they may argue who was the creator, but there was the, the idea of time, matter, and space that came into existence at some point prior to which it did not exist. That is universally accepted and thus this is really not – if the Rambam existed today, I would imagine, and he was writing his guide to perplex, he would probably would not spend as much time on the fourth principle because it's accepted really by everyone that uh, – or at least major parts of this fourth principle are accepted by all that the world has a beginning. The first word of the Torah is true. I want to talk now about the – I would say the intersection between between Torah – and specifically as it relates to theology and the accepted consensus of the scientists. I think there's a few ways to approach this subject. Maybe there's a cynical way to do it. Well, the scientists don't believe in Torah and they have an agenda against Torah and they're trying to disprove Torah and they come up with all these cockamamie theories the world's 15 billion years old. Go argue with them, right? Oh, we used to be monkeys and we developed and we matured and we spontaneously evolved into being what we are today. There's a punctuated equilibrium, very fancy words, but it just happens. There's just changes in the genes and it just happens. So I think there's a, there's a cynical way to look at it and there's maybe a more subtle way to look at it. And I want to talk about these, these subject as we are approaching the conclusion of the Rambam's lists of of principles that relate to theology, I think it's appropriate for us to try to wrestle, grapple with the questions that arise both from the scientific consensus and how it conflicts with Torah and maybe the scientific hypotheses that are accepted or at least are are ubiquitous in the world and in, in textbooks and see how they do, you know, can they be Reconciled with Torah, can they co- coexist together? Are they in opposition? What do we know about this subject? So I want to start with the question of the age of the universe. If you open up a textbook today, if you Google it, I assure, I'm sure you'll find an answer somewhere between 12 or 17 billion years. That's when the Big Bang, so to speak, happened. That's when the creation of the world, of the universe, happened. The world that we live in today, planet Earth, maybe three and a half billion years old. And there's all kinds of, so to speak, evidence to prove this. Uh, they look at uh, the glaciers and they look at the ice samples and they look at the carbon dating and they look at the, the, the astronomy of 
of you know how far the world is and the conjecture is that well there was a point in time where it was just you know one little thing of mass that exploded and you take the rate of 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 the, the you know how fast it's traveling and you work backwards if you, you know how long was it one compact piece and you have 15.4 billion years or 13.8 billion years what's the you know what's 1.4 billion years amongst friends it's nothing 1.6 billion it's nothing uh, so that's that's an interesting question because it seems like if you ask me, what does the Torah say about how old the, the universe is? Well, there is no definitive Torah source on this. However, there's a simple way to, to work it out. You would take the creation and you take Adam. And how old was Adam when his son was born? And how old was his son when his son was born? And we have generations, how old they were when their son was born. And we kind of add that up and we have how many years was you know, from Adam to Abraham. So you just count the years, you have 1948 years from Adam to Abraham, from Adam's creation to Abraham being born. It's 20 generations, 1948 years. So you would assume, just reading simply, that Abraham was born at the year 1948 of creation from Adam. Now, what is not so clear is that there's no months, just years. So if Adam was maybe... You know, I don't remember how old he was when his son was born. He was 130, whatever it was, but maybe it was a few more months and you collect those months. Maybe it was 1955. I don't know, but it's, it's, that's the basic framework of this idea. Well, how old was Abraham when, when Isaac was born? How old was Isaac when Jacob was born and so on? And how old was till Moses? And eventually we have the timeline that, that takes shape. And the general consensus is that right now we're living in the year five, 1,779 since Adam, nearing at 6,000. So even if you want to round it up to a couple thousand, maybe we're, we're at 5,800 if we didn't count correctly. But it's actually interesting. If you look at uh, many Jewish books that date the year, it says the year, 5,000, let's say, you know, 5,779. And then it will say three letters, a lamid, a fei, and a kuf. And it's a, that's an, that's an acronym, which means, which stands for, Lefi Kabbalah as per our tradition. Which means, it's not what I think it's definitive, a definitive timeline. It's a tradition. That's the traditional date and that's the traditional years that we have. That's the basic outline of, of what we believe. So, you look at it simply. We're talking about, you know, roughly around 6,000 years. And in fact, the Talmud goes on to tell us that the world will live, will exist for 6,000 years and then 7,000 years will be a different kind of world. And similar to you have Shabbos, you have six days of the week and then one day of Shabbos, you have 6,000 years and then 1,000 years, which is a different year, which, which is, a, which is a different, a different uh, ethos, a different, a different uh, existence. And then you have maybe that repeat several times. Uh, there's the idea that there's 7,000 plus 7,000 plus seven, seven rounds of seven, just like you have the Shemitah cycle. You have every six years you work, seven years you stop, and that goes on not just for six years, then it goes to 49 years, and then there's the 50th year. So there's another another theme, another theme in that, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, that there's 6,000 plus one, 6,000 plus one for a total of 50,000 years. But again, the numbers are very small compared to what the scientists are telling us uh, with uh, seemingly uh, great confidence that the world is is very old. It's in the billions, not not even the thousands, not even the millions. It is the billions. So how do we reconcile that? Uh, do we say they're wrong? Do we say that really it's not 6,000 years or really it's 
really. This is the 13 billion years, or we're just different. You know, this is the science, this is the Torah, they're different. So I, I think there's at least three general approaches that I want to talk about, and maybe we'll, we'll expand it uh, in our next session. So I think there's a very simple answer to this question. When Adam was created, did he have teeth to chew? Well, the answer is yes, because we know he ate some fruit. So he obviously had teeth, and this is the day that he was created. So on the day he was created, he has teeth. I know, I have uh, several children, thank God, they should live and be well. None of them were born with teeth. I did read, though, that I think one out of every 2,500 babies is born with some teeth. But even then, it's only one tooth. But you would imagine, Adam was created, he wasn't created as a baby, he's created, as I just tell, he's created as, 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 as an adult. So when the world was created and when Adam was created, it wasn't created as a baby world. It was created as an advanced world. So maybe there were saplings, small little trees, but maybe there were big trees as well. It was, it was a vibrant and existing world. It wasn't created as a, a, an infant nascent world. So what would happen if you would cut down one of the trees, a uh, hundred foot cedar trees? How many reams would you find inside of it? Would you find no rings because it hasn't been around for you? Or maybe God created a vibrant, existing world. That's a very simple answer is that maybe the world that God created was not a baby world. It was an advanced world. God created an old world. The world was already billions of years old. And the human experience, the the Adam experience, that was only 6,000 years ago. But the world came into existence as already a very advanced world. And maybe there were people before Adam. That's, of course, a, a, a tantalizing question. You know, the Neanderthals were the, were the other people or humanoids of sorts. Again, that's a detail. But the general theme, one of the general approaches is that the world created as an existing world that could be viewed as being much older because it was created in advanced stages. That's one way to answer this. A second way to answer this question is that the world is really only 6,000 years old. And when I say 6,000, I mean 6,000. So why does it look to us to be older? Maybe there's other events, cataclysmic events, that caused artificial aging. So for example, we have the flood story of Genesis. And of Noah, what does that do to the world? And how does it look post-facto? Maybe all that carbon that uh, that was taken out of the rocks, well, maybe that has something to do with, with what happened to Noah. Maybe the deep-sea fossils that we find in Kansas, it's not because of an ice age. It's because of the flood. It was all covered with flood water and deep-sea fossils come. That's a theory. Uh, we know that the Talmud tells us that the species that interbred in the times of Noah didn't get a slot on the boat. And we know that 99% of species that have existed are already extinct. Well, maybe they went extinct then, not over the course of billions of years, but over the course of thousands of years, but they look a lot older once you throw in some curveballs, uh, such as the flood and maybe other events like the Tower of Babel and, and, and the like, that did artificially, so to speak, expedite 
accelerate the aging, or at least how it looks to us post facto. That's another another branch of of uh, of this subject. There is a third way to reconcile this question, and the general a- answer, and we're going to go through at least one of those specific answers today. Maybe we'll talk about some of the other uh, angles in in a future discussion. Is that the world really is? 5,779 years old, but there's also six days of creation. Because the time only begins with, with Adam. We start counting with Adam. Adam is all the way at the end. He's at day six. He's the very last thing to be created. What happened before him? That's six days. But what about these six days? We know these six days are not the way we would typically think of days. Because we think of a day as a, uh, you know, the sun making its appearance again. In our eastern horizon, that, that's a new day. That marks a new day. Well, the sun appears on day four of creation. So day one to day two, there's something other than a constellation called the sun that marked this turnover from day one to day two. What it was is, is, is a great mystery. We don't know the answer to that question, but it was something else. And we can prove from that that this day is a different kind of day. What exactly made it a day, who knows? But that at least shows us at least a window to to maybe start speculating that the days of creation were a little bit different than the days that we – the way we typically think of them. Uh, in addition, you know, Torah sources make it clear these are not any ordinary days. So for example, Adam and Eve created on, on Friday, made it on Friday, produced two children on Friday. It's a pretty eventful Friday. The same day that you're created is that they become parents. Twice over. Obviously, there is a different kind of existence that is present during those six days that not, are not necessarily portable to the way we to the way we view those six days. And therefore, the argument goes that it's not infeasible to suggest that when we look back at those six days, the way we currently calculate days, those days would look maybe like hundreds thousands, millions, maybe even billions of years looking backwards. This idea was suggested in the 1960s by Rabbi Shimon Schwab, who was a German rabbi, survived the Holocaust and moved to Baltimore and eventually to uh, Manhattan. And he was uh, a very advanced scholar in the secular studies as well, brilliant writer, a great Torah scholar as well. And when uh, the the age of the universe became a, a major discussion, this was the general idea that he proposed. And there's an expansion that was presented in 1979 by Rabbi Arya Kaplan, who was a uh, a rabbi and a physicist. He was one of the the most promising physicists in America, but was someone who was also a huge Titanic scholar not just of, of the revealed portions of the Torah, but especially the hidden portions of the Torah. Wrote many, many books uh, on all kinds of subjects. Uh, wrote primary translations of, of, of the Torah. A very fascinating character. Sadly, he died. He was very young. He was only 48 years old when he passed away in 1983. But in 1979, he gave a lecture to a group of scientists where he proposed a brilliant reconciliation based upon legitimate sources in in Jewish literature of how 
our world and the way the scientists view it are really the same age. And I actually have a transcript of his speech, and I selected parts, citations of, of this transcript to, to convey this brilliant idea. It's so clever. It's so brilliant. It's, it's something you have to share. And of course, there's other angels to the discussion. Hopefully, we'll talk about next time. So he quotes a book called the Sefer Hatimuna. This is a Kabbalistic work. It is attributed to one of the Tanaim, one of the Mishnaic era sages named Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana. It is quoted by many of the mainstream commentators like the Ramban. It is something, it, it is a book that is well established. It's certainly one that has been available to the reading public for hundreds of years. So it's not a recent apologetics. And he speaks about the idea of the Shemitah. Talmud tells us that the world will exist for 6,000 years and then there's the 7,000th year, which is a different, a different kind of existence. But the Sefer Hatimuna adds that that's just one cycle of many cycles. That really it's like a Yovel, 50, 50, but it's 50,000. Just like there's 6,000 and then the 7,000th, there's seven cycles of that seven, of that 7,000 years, totaling 49 plus the 50th year, which is the ultimate, the ultimate uh, rest day, so to speak. And thus, the world, it's not just a 6,000-year world plus a 7,000-year, it's seven rounds of that, which is 49,000 plus a 50,000 years, 50,000 years. Okay. So the major question that we have to discuss is, okay, so if we're living in these cycles, which cycle are we in right now? Are we in the first Shemitah cycle, year 1,000 to 7,000? Are we in the second, 7 to 14, 14 to 21? 21 to 28, 28 to 35,000, 35,000. Which one are we in right now? So that's a discussion, and he brings several opinions. One opinion says it's the second cycle. One opinion says it is the fourth cycle. And then he brings the Sefer Livnas HaSaper. Again, these are very obscure, esoteric sources, but these are legitimate sources that are reputable. These are not uh, kakamami stuff. He quotes the, the Sefer Livnas HaSapir, which says that right now we're in the sixth cycle, meaning where the world is 42,000 years plus. We're in the, we're in the 42,000 to, uh, to 49,000 cycle. And in this lecture, he does go on several tangents where he tries to explain, he tells stories. I, I, I selected the citations, um, to, to try to, you know, keep it, uh, tight so we can follow his, his story. Uh, he's dancing around the problem that, you know, this is, this is Kabbalah. Kabbalah is a very dicey territory. Uh, does the Arizal agree with this? Does the Arizal, of course, is the great codifier of Kabbalah. It seems like he disagreed with this. Can we really go with it? Who is it quoted by? Regardless, he, he wants to say that because this is a matter of what's called hashkafa, philosophy, it's not about halacha, even if the Arizal disagrees with it, it's still something we could discuss and we could still ponder. Uh, and he goes on to say that the Radbaz, who was the generation prior to the Arizal in the end of the 15th and early 16th century, he 
was someone who wrote a commentary on the Sefer Atimuna, which means he obviously held it in high esteem, and therefore it is a legitimate position. And then he goes on to talk about the Midrash. The Midrash says, there, there's, a, there's an amazing payoff at the end here, I promise. The Midrash goes on to say that God created universes and destroyed them. Again, I, I want to just make this disclaimer clear as possible. We're talking right now way, way, way above my knowledge and certainly my pay grade. So I'm just reading this citation because it's it's germane to our subject and it's very fascinating and it's very brilliant and it's very clever, as we shall see. But I'm kind of go through his progression the way he did it. So there's a midrash that says God created universes and destroyed them. And what does that mean? Is that actual universes? Is that spiritual universes? It seems like the Arizal says, and again, the Arizal is the name for Kabbalah. He seems to go that it is spiritual worlds. However, there are others that say, no, we have this 6,000 plus one 7,000-year cycle. Maybe there's a 7,000-year cycle, and then there's a destruction. There's another 7,000-year cycle, another destruction, another seven, etc. And it seems like some of them, some of the commentaries, they explain that this Midrash, this very cryptic Midrash, God creates worlds and creates universes and destroys them and starts from scratch, that is in line, that is dovetailing with the Sefer Tzimuna of the 7,000-year blocks of, of, of existence. Uh, and he's acknowledging that even though it's not clear that everyone agrees, but there is definitely opinions that do seem to agree with that. In addition, the Talmud, for example, says... And you read this. This is in the Talmud. You don't have to go to the Midrash to, read, to, to encounter this, this idea. The Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 88b, tells us that Moses went to heaven to negotiate the acceptance of Torah for the Jewish people. And the angels were totally befuddled at his appearance there. And they say to God, what is this earthling doing here? He has no business doing here. Well, I'm going to give him the Torah. You can give him the Torah to this man? The Torah that you have with you, this is the critical line, 974 generations before you created the world, you're going to give that to humanity? That's what that's, that's, that's what the Talmud says in the book of Shabbos, page 88b. What does it mean that the Torah was created 974 generations before the world was created? Didn't we just say the world was created and time was created? What is this idea that there are generations that precede the world, 974, is a very specific number. And the commentaries add, as a side note, how many generations were there from Adam to Moses? Well, there's 20 generations from Adam to Abraham. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob's son, Levi. And Levi has a son, Kahas. And then we have, of course, Amram, Moses. Six generations, 26. 26 plus 974, exactly 1,000. And the quotes the verse that God does kindness. God does kindness for a thousand years. There's a thousand years from creation of Torah till it's been given to mankind. But again, we could be talking like this. We could study this and we really have no idea what we're talking about. But what we do know for sure is that the Talmud says that, that the Torah was created 974 generations before the world created. What does that even mean? That the world before it was created, there was the Torah that existed 974 generations prior. So again, he wants to suggest, based upon uh, the sources, quoting the source, Ma'areches uh, Elokus, which, by the way, means the system of God or godliness. It's a pretty ambitious title. So he says that this idea of 974 generations before the world, that's referencing a previous Shemitah cycle. 
going along with this opinion of the Sefer HaTemuna. And he goes on to list many other sources that either are alluding to it or are explicitly talking about it. Uh, Rabbeinu Bachai, the Rakanti, Sefer HaChinuch. Uh, he says the Ramban and the Ibn Ezra, they seem to allude to it. There is the book called the Tiferes Yisrael, one of the commentaries on the Mishnah. He talks about it. He writes that there was a, a lecture that he wrote uh, called the Drush Arachayim, which means the lecture or the discourse of the light of life that was taken out of the books because they thought that it was inappropriate. They thought he was writing about Darwin, even though he wrote it in 1834, which preceded Darwin. It's omitted. Anyhow, this is it's a very it's a very meandering part of the lecture because he's ta- he's trying to give credence to this idea found in a Kabbalistic book that's 700 years in circulation, but attributed to Rabbi Nechon and Ben Hakano. Regardless, he wants to suggest as follows. This is point number one. Point number one is that the existence of the world and the existence of the universe is in 7,000-year blocks. And according to one opinion at least, we're in the final block, which is which means that the creation of this current world is 42,000 years after the earliest creation. That's that's how. So the world is 42,000 years old, more or less, plus 5,779. But he 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 adds another ingredient to to this cauldron by quoting Rabbi Yitzchak Dimin Akko, Rabbi Yitzchak from Akko. Akko is a city in northern Israel. And Rabbi Yitzchak Dimin Akko from Akko, he was a colleague of the Ramban. And in fact, when the Zohar was discovered and there were questions about its legitimacy, the person that was sent to investigate it was Rabbi Yitzchak Dimin Akko. He was a great Kabbalist. He's quoted by many of the traditional works of Kabbalah. And he adds another point which brings this home. He agrees with the opinion of the Sefer Temuna, meaning that it's 7,000-year blocks. But then he adds that when we talk about this, we're not talking about standard days. We're talking about godly days. What is the difference between a standard day and a godly day? So there's a verse. The verse tells us that one day for God, is like a thousand years for us. And here comes the payoff. When we say the world is 42,000 years old, we're not saying 42,000 years of our years. We're saying 42,000 years of God's years. Well, how long is a, is a year of God? Well, if each day is a thousand years for us, that means each year of God is how many years for us? 365,250. Because each year is 365 and a quarter days. And therefore, each year for God, how many years is that for us? Is 365 and a quarter thousand. So 365,250. That's each year. So what happens if you multiply 365250 by 42,000? 15 billion years. Minds blown. And I'll read you a quote here just to, just to 
to read it um, from his, his – this is, a, a, again, it's a transcript. According to Livnus Asapir, the most authoritative interpretation of the Sefer Tzmuna, we are now in the Sitch Shemitah, when Adam was created, the world was 42,000 years old. But before Adam was created, we do not use human years, but divine years. Therefore, the age of the universe is 42,000 divine years. As we've seen earlier, one divine year is 365,250 human years. Therefore, the age of the universe is 42,000 times 365250 human years. Made the calculation, you see it comes out that the universe is close to 15 billion years old. This is an interesting figure. For most calculations made on the basis of the expanding universe and other aspects of cosmology, this is precisely the age of the universe given by science. And yet, this figure is given in Torah sources over 700 years old. No apologetics here. And again, this is an amazing bit of scholarship that he takes one opinion of the idea of the Shemitah, the Sefer Tzmuna, and then one opinion of that, which is the sixth, that we're in this, that we finished the sixth cycle, we're in the seventh cycle, 42,000 years, and then adding that wrinkle from the Rabbi Yitzhak ibn Akro that it's not talking about human years, it's God years, and then voila, what do you end up with? You end up with a world that in human years is 15 billion years old. Now I want to add, it's so clever, and it's so brilliant that you have to say it. You have to just repeat it over. Most people are not aware of this, by the way. I'm going to add this. This is something that most people don't know about, don't know of this calculation. Uh, but there are other answers that are legitimate. Again, we're not saying this is definitive. And we're not – we don't feel like we need to bend over backwards to accommodate the scientists. Remember, for 2,400 years, they were with Aristotle, the world's eternal. And then comes along the 1950s, 1960s, and that changes everything. Finally, they're going to tell her, we don't feel like we we need to contort ourselves to accommodate them. Let them accommodate us. We have not we have yet been to been proven wrong. They've been proven wrong repeatedly. But it's still something that it's it's worthy to wrestle with. And I think it is interesting that we find in ancient sources this formulation that the world is 15 billion years old. Not to say that this is the only Jewish perspective on the subject, but it is definitely noteworthy to share. Well, we're talking about this subject, and again, we look forward to in the future, next time, to talk more about this, uh, about maybe some of the other perspectives on this very interesting question and dilemma, and maybe also get into what the Torah would say on the theory of evolution, namely that things evolve from other things. Is that compatible with Torah? Surely that's a fascinating question to ponder.